Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today it is my pleasure to be joined by Ivan Orensky, co-founder of Retraction Watch and executive director of the Center for Scientific Integrity. Hello, Ivan, and welcome. Thank you, Christoph. It's great to be here. It's my pleasure. Now, in this last year, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we have come to know, know a peculiar little phrase, much more intimate and at times also too much intimate than before. And this phrase is, we are following the science. Now, before we dive into some of the lesser known, but particularly important aspects of the workings of science that decide retraction watch that you have co-founded even correctly insists upon. Let us, however, first quickly try to establish what science can and cannot tell us in the attempt to understand the scientific method just a little bit better. Sure. So I think that um, there has definitely been this phrase around a lot. We are following the science or you should follow the science or some version of that. I think that it's probably more useful, although, as we say, the that horse has left the barn, the train has left the station, to think about we should be following the evidence. We should be looking at what the evidence says at a particular time and also be willing to understand and really act on the fact that evidence changes. We learn more. Uh, if knowledge and science and what we knew was static, uh, well, frankly, it would be a very boring world, but also um, we would be very rigid. We wouldn't really understand how the world works. And so what science can do, what the scientific method can do is tell us at a given time, here's what we know, here's what we have tested, here's what we've learned um, that may change. Or the other thing that it really, that we really need to emphasize is this is what we know at this time and all knowledge is provisional. It doesn't mean we shouldn't act on it. I mean, take the a metaphor or an analogy of a criminal court case, right? Um, the prosecutor will try and bring the absolute best case that he or she can bring and can try to convince a jury that in fact, and a judge, and that in fact, you know, the, the person being accused is guilty. Now, the prosecutor can't possibly know everything. Uh, if someone didn't confess, even if they did confess, there are questions about that. So, we have to act based on what we know. And it may not, it may be that the evidence is not good enough. In the middle of a pandemic, we have to understand that there is a natural human tendency to do something, um, which we need to be aware of. Sometimes it's the right instinct, sometimes it's the wrong, in wrong instinct. And so we can't wait for us, for science to tell us every single answer to the nth degree, but we should pay attention to what scientists and researchers are finding in terms of the evidence and understand that that itself is always going to be subject to questioning. And if it weren't subject to questioning, I would be far more worried. Yeah, and to remain just one more second with the following the science sentence. In, in the popular mind, what is often called, and I quote unquote here, the science, evokes this idea of a monolithic edifice of, of unassailable truth 
And when we hear of something as confirmed by these science or by scientists at prestigious institutions, there seems to be for most people an almost automatic assignment of a truth value to this without actually having any way or any idea to check or verify the assertions made. So let me maybe ask a very provocative question. Um, how religious has the science become? Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, scientists, or many of them anyway, might really bristle at the idea that they have suddenly become religious, even if they're privately or personally religious. Um, I think, though, that what is what I see anyway, is that science has, um, like every other human endeavor, it has elements of tribalism in it. Um, you tend to believe things uh, that uh, your tribe, that your maybe the people you trained with, maybe people at your university, um, maybe that sort of confirm your prior beliefs, right? So there's this whole notion uh, that has been well described of confirmation bias or motivated reasoning. And so, you know, there are various um, reasons for that. There are various elements of why groups tend to start believing certain things or only trusting the evidence on one side. I mean, politics is full of this, of course. Um, but, you know, and it may be what how you're funded. It may be um, what you made your name on. And if you made your name on something and then all of a sudden it looks as though it's not true, you're going to really question everything that seems to be questioning your work. Um, there are elements of that that are really positive. In other words, you want, you know, just like, you know, I'm a journalist, I, I trained as a doctor, but I'm a journalist. I wake up every morning, hopefully thinking, well, how can I prove myself wrong today? And, and mm -hmm. scientists should be doing that and I think a lot of scientists do do that. Um, but if you don't do that, and if you just sort of, well, so-and-so, the august person uh, said this, someone that I really have trusted before, um, that's where you get into trouble. That's where, again, it becomes fairly tribal. So th this idea about, of, of tribalism is actually a, a really good thing, because when I, I talked with Sunetra Gupta, this is from the Great Barrington Declaration. This is exactly what the, the, the message that, we, that she was bringing forth, that, that the whole idea of science here in this COVID pandemic, it became into a tribalism of being pro and con, and science suffered from this. Oh, that's right. And, you know, there, science shouldn't really be pro or con. Mm. Science should say, here, here's the evidence. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that science may only be looking at certain questions. Mm. Um, you know, science doesn't tend to look at the policy ramifications, I and mean, it's not designed to, and maybe you could even argue it shouldn't, although there are plenty of people who think it should. And so, again, if you're only asking certain questions, you're going to get certain answers, and those may be the right answers to those questions. Let's even assume that's true. It does not necessarily mean, you know, that we should, as a, as a people, you know, as humanity, go in a certain direction, because it may be that that would be very harmful. And so we have to really think about where that is. And, and I'm not commenting here on, um, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration, which is no, no, no. controversial, but there, there, you know, it's the, the pandemic is not the first time that the science has said something and that the, the policy has potentially opposed it. Um, this has been true for many, many, in many, many situations in science before, um, even if you look at dual use research, in other words, uh, scientific findings that can be used to for harm. So uh, creating uh, bioweapons, creating 
uh, nuclear weapons. I mean, this was all science that was doing that. Mm. But the point is that that needed to be in a, in a policy framework, uh, mm. which when things, are go, when things go well, when things are working well, um, pol- policymakers take the evidence that they see and that scientists provide for them, research provides for them, and then put it into a framework that makes sense, as opposed to rejecting the evidence that doesn't suit their intended policy. To add an, another layer to the, the previous question, uh, for as much as science proceeds this following the publication of a scientific papers in peer-reviewed, often even blind, reviewed academic or scientific journals, the publication of a paper does, however, not necessarily prove to be the final phase. At times, published papers need to be recalled and retracted for a variety of reasons. Now, could you maybe share some of your thoughts on this process, even because with the Retraction Watch site you have co-founded, I think you know a lot about this. So how does this happen, this retraction, and why does it happen? And also, more importantly, probably, how important is it that this happens? Well, what's, what's critical is that the scientific record uh, do its very best. Uh, the scientific record is not, a, is not a person. It can't do anything. It is, of course, in the hands of of researchers, scientists, um, publishers, uh, journals, uh, others, uh, and commenters. Um, what, what's important is that we all, and I, I suppose I'm part of this, although really I'm an observer, is that the research enterprise do its best to keep the scientific record up to date, uh, that they correct it when there is an error or frankly, when there's fraud. Mm-hmm. And, and so retraction, scientific retraction is sort of the if you will, the nuclear option of self-correction or of correction in science. Uh, there are corrections, there are you know, fancy words, uh, errata and corrigenda, um, and these are for more minor issues. So you know, I, I publish a paper and someone's name is spelled wrong or there's a, you know, there's a sentence that doesn't make sense and I wanna fix it. It doesn't change the overall findings of the paper or the conclusions, you know, that's a simple matter. Retractions are when you, according to guidelines, when you simply can't trust the paper anymore, you, you can't rely on it uh, for, for any number of reasons. Um, about two thirds of the time, this is due to misconduct. Uh, it's due to whether it's making the data up or falsifying them and, and making them look better than they are, or uh, cherry picking, as we say, sort of not providing uh, the full picture uh, or plagiarizing. That's also considered misconduct, but sometimes it's because of honest error. And it's really very important that researchers not see published papers as the final word, as the sort of, um, you know, gospel, as, mm. uh, because the, they're not. And yet the, the problem really is that the incentive structure in science is such that all that matters to uh, tenure committees and promotion committees and getting grants and, and advancing your career is publishing in big journals. And so it, it's, it becomes almost personal because it is your livelihood. If someone questions your work and says, well, I think that paper is, is a problem and maybe it should be retracted. It isn't simply, it's not a, you're not at all separated from it. And so you take it very personally. Um, you fight uh, sometimes in honest ways and sometimes in fairly dishonest ways to make sure the paper doesn't get retracted. Um, and then, you know, the scientific record loses. And frankly, the public loses because now we don't know what the truth is. We just know what the loudest voice was able to achieve. Mm. Now, um, recent research has shown that, first of all, re- retractions uh, seem to be uh, on the rise. 
and they are on the rise uh, since decades, and that's plural. Now, according to a 2011 study in Nature, uh, there had been a tenfold increase in retractions since the past 10 years. And in 2015, another report uh, found that 20-25% increased in retractions increased and in them mainly in medical uh, science journals. However, in a more recent study published by Science and to which you guys from Retraction Watch collaborated, there seems to have been a sort of leveling off of retractions. How would you explain uh, this, first of all, this apparent uh, decade-long rising uh, of uh, retractions? Is it more fraudulent science that is being published? Is more of it being detected? Or is it, is it, is it both of that? And then my second question would be, how would you uh, describe or how would you react to that leveling off? Sure. So I think it's important, first of all, is to you know, think about context and uh, denominators. Um, the number of papers published sort of grows by about three or four percent every year, depending on some various sources and what you know, groupings of papers you're looking at. So over the periods that you're describing, and really there was a look, as you mentioned, in 2011 at the first decade of this century, uh, and now we've obviously have data for the second decade of the century. Um, it's very clear that the number has grown dramatically. So in 2000, there were about 40 retractions last year, um, and some are still trickling into our database, but we are well over 1,800 retractions, 1,800. So that's a multiple of, what is that, 40-something times. Now, the number of papers published between those two years, uh, it's probably at least triple, maybe even quadruple. So it's not quite as dramatic a rise, but it's still quite a dramatic rise. Um, to get to the second question first, the, the leveling off, I, I would say that that was, and we tried to be clear, the, the authors of the piece in science tried to be clear, that was um, seemed reasonably likely, but we weren't sure yet because retractions seemed to take a little while. So that may be the case um, in terms of leveling off, but more to the central question of you know, what, what's explaining, what explains this? Um, and I think that it's in large part, if not, you know, above 90%, uh, what's responsible is better detection. Uh, and the fact that more people are looking. So if you look at what was happening in 2000, you know, we all, now we're in 2020, we all sort of, I, I think even those of us who were not digital natives, you know, in other words, those of us born in you know, the early seventies or before that, uh, when the internet did not exist, um, we sort of tend to forget that most of the time when you wanted to look at a, an article in a journal uh, before, well, certainly 1995, but even most of the time uh, before like 2000 or so, you'd have to go to a library and, and find it and hope that it was there. Now everything's online, even if it's behind a paywall or what have you, many, many more people can see that paper. What that means is they can compare texts, they can compare images, they can look for issues. Um, and so really what you're looking at is a screening effect. It's sort of like if you, you know, if we didn't test anyone for COVID, then there would be zero cases. If we test everyone, there will be lots of cases, right? And the same thing is true for cancer or anything else. So that is probably responsible for at least, again, 90% of the issue. Now, it's also likely true. And, and I, I've, my, my, my mind has changed on this, uh, not so much change, but there's just more and more evidence that comes to, to light. Um, there is some evidence that the amount of misconduct has increased. Um, it's not great evidence yet. It's not as strong as I think a lot of us would like it to be, but there, there, there's more than a hint. Um, 
And so there was someone who looked at Elizabeth Bick is her name. She looked at 20,000 images, 20,000 papers, I should say, images in 20,000 papers and found that the likelihood of finding a uh, sort of inappropriate duplication of an image, which is really falsifying the scientific record. It's, it's, um, it's, make, it's, it's basically making things up or at least misrepresenting, uh, had doubled over the period of time that she looked at. Um, there are new ways based on technology that authors uh, and people and companies they work with even are faking papers and faking peer review. So it stands to reason that some of this increase is probably because there are new ways to cheat. Um, but most of it seems to be due to the fact that uh, more people are looking. I mean, we launched Retraction Watch in 2010 um, there were more retractions then than we thought there were. Uh, and certainly, again, I think lots of people have been thinking about these issues and writing about them. But, you know, we, we you know, we shined a spotlight on on retractions. And so, uh, again, um, whether we were riding the wave or we were part of the wave, I don't know. But clearly there's more attention being paid and more people looking for these issues. Mm -hmm. Now, as we speak, uh, more than 80 scientific papers on the COVID-19 pandemic have already been retracted. Do you think these retractions can be seen and understood in the same general picture you have just drawn, or is there something more or new at hand here? No, I think that roughly speaking, uh, and we have, as of this morning when we're talking, there are 84 uh, such retractions for um, COVID-19 papers. Roughly speaking, we're seeing the same patterns that we see elsewhere. On the other hand, we don't see quite as much out and out fraud as we tend to see. But again, it's a small sample size. 84 is not actually a lot. And there's a lot of evidence that publishers and, and authors and, and journals are rushing. So there are 10 of those papers were attracted because one publisher, Elsevier, a major publisher in the world, mm -hmm. um, published them twice by accident. It had nothing to do with misconduct or fraud or just they, they messed up. Um, there are other cases where there's just sloppiness, um, people rushing papers because they wanted to publish them. Uh, I actually appreciate that instinct, but I think maybe we need to all understand what happens when you rush. The other thing is that a lot of these are actually from preprint servers. These are, uh, they have names like you know, BioArchive and MedArchive. These are not peer reviewed yet. They are posted and really the pandemic has um, allowed these to flourish, uh, these preprint servers, which we think is a good thing. Um, it means more is getting out there, but it also needs to be said that these are not peer reviewed yet. Um, they undergo a very, very rough, uh, a very basic check, uh, but not peer review. And so again, it stands to reason that some of those might have to be withdrawn, which is what we're seeing as well. So there are some differences, but overall, um, what the pandemic has revealed in terms of, it's not revealing to me um, and those of us who've been following this, but it is really made public in a way that I think a lot of people hadn't been thinking about a lot of the problems in the scientific literature. Mm, thanks. Now, turning to another, but uh, equally fundamental correlated topic, namely integrity. Now, in, in the blog, you have retracted your uh, own advice on how to report scientific misconduct. While originally you advised to contact editors and authors, you claim that since issuing this advice, you have seen such a barrage of cover-ups, of intimidations, of bureaucratic obfuscations, even ad hominem attacks, that you now advise to contact institutional watchdogs instead. 
Now, in the course of running Retraction Watch, Watch, has something changed about, shall we say, your faith in a scientific community? And would you advise us to abide by Max Planck's principle that a new scientific truth does not triumph, triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because these opponents eventually die? <laughs> it's a famous, and I, I, I occasionally quote that myself, the, the Max Planck uh, the sort of funeral quote, right? Um, I, I think, I, I don't know if my opinion has changed as much as I have uh, come to see that, you know, scientists are just like the rest of us. Um, I still actually think that most scientists, most researchers um, do not go into science to deceive or do not wake up every morning trying to deceive. Um, but I, I do think that we need to understand how uh, how human they are. And I think that the reason we retracted that advice, as you point out, is that, again, we were seeing these patterns of behavior that I, I don't know that it surprised us as much as it reminded us that uh, people will do what they have to do to uh, maintain what they have. Uh, and so I, I think that um, Planck's principle about, you know, uh, scientific truth triumphing you know, when, when others basically die because it, people move on. Um, again, it's somewhat uh, cynical. I, I don't think inappropriately cynical. Um, and it is certainly true that, you know, in a, in a more metaphorical sense, um, until as long as the powerful remain powerful, their ideas will, will hold sway. Um, but I do think that one of the positive developments has been the ability of so many more people to have voices for people to use sites like uh, PubPeer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is uh, PubPeer.com, which is, uh, and again, full disclosure, I'm on the, I'm a volunteer on the board of directors there, uh, but people can leave comments and then everyone can see them. Um, journals, you know, have typically not allowed a lot of comments or don't really like a lot of comments because they can be critical and they can sort of make people question the peer review process. Um, but a lot of that is really positive. There are these sleuths, I mentioned Elizabeth Bick, um, there are a number of others who look at things like plagiarism and statistical anomalies. Um, th this is all a good thing. And so if that starts to, um, you know, allow correction to happen more quickly, I, I think that's a very positive development. Mm, yeah. Now, refusing to retract a paper is not the only problem you have uncovered in Retraction Watch. Even if an article is retracted, that does not mean that it is, uh, quote unquote, dead. Uh, there are some surprising statistics on your blog regarding the continuous citation of retracted papers. Now, some scientific papers have even received more citations since their retractions than before. How should we interpret this data? Is this all simply pseudoscience derived from bogus fake scientific journals? Or if not, is there a strict border between real science and this pseudoscience? Or is there more of an open overlap? And, and how problematic is all of this or how unproblematic? Yeah, I mean, there, there is, you know, again, everything is a spectrum, as, as uh, you know, as you suggest. Um, certainly, there are things that are obviously pseudoscience. Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, things like uh, creationism and what have you, and people are welcome to believe that, but to think that it is somehow scientific is, is misguided. Um, the, uh, but then there are things that I think are in the broad category of not even wrong. So are, are we looking even at the right criteria? Are we looking at the right factors? Um, have we have we looked at all of the potential confounding variables, for example, that 
some, you know, what could explain what we think we're seeing that actually is explained by something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, are we even doing the right tests? Are we doing the right statistical tests? Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of science in journals uh, that, again, is sort of not even wrong. It, it, it's, you know, it may be superficially correct. You can look at it and see what they did, and they probably did those experiments, and, and that's fine. It just doesn't tell us anything. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the citations of previous work, though, th- that's a larger problem, or at least a different problem that, frankly, we're trying to solve uh, with our database of retractions, and which a lot of, uh, you know, whether it's publishers and other, you know, indexers and bibliographic software are using to cut down on those citations. Because mm-hmm. what, what the citations of, of retracted work tell us, and again, it's retraction, it's citations of retraction, retracted work without saying that the paper's retracted, mm-hmm. that tells us more about the behavior of researchers when they're writing papers. And some of them, in fact, just copy and paste old reference lists, or they don't check the papers, or they do check the papers, and the publishers haven't let them know it's been retracted, which is, again, one of the reasons we created Retraction Watch. Mm-hmm. So there are some almost, um, I don't want to say bureaucratic, but there are also there are some sort of um, you know, technological issues there that, and behavioral issues there that probably have less to do with whether a certain number of papers are right or wrong than just the behavior of how scientists work. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and we can still add up because there's still one more aspect to the combination of astonishing abrasiveness or simple carelessness of refusals to retract scientifically unsound research coupled with the continued citation of retracted papers. Uh, if the science in question was important enough, surely people would have no choice but to retract it or to acknowledge it's falsehood because something would be at stake. There would be a negative outcome for some kind of research because of the falsehood in question being that practical or merely theoretical. But this does not seem to be the case. So my question is how much of the science, and I quote unquote the word science here, obviously, that is how much of the so-called hard and exact sciences be that theoretical or more practical inclined science, how much of this type of science that is being done today actually still matters at all anyone or anything? I, I think it's that's actually a provocative question, Christoph. And, and I, I think the reason is that, you know, science is supposed to be about accelerating, you know, sort of knowledge discovery, if you will. It's supposed to be about, about getting um, closer to the truth and, and really understanding that you're never going to quite get to the truth. Um, and so you, you sort of, it's asymptotic. You get, you know, the, the arc bends and all of that. And so you get closer and closer. I think that, you know, the, the problem has become, one of the problems is that because so much, because science costs money and because people need to have jobs and um, all of this, and there's competition for all of those things, um, the way that uh, politicians who end up being important in this equation because they control some of the purse strings, mm-hmm. the way that politicians uh, value science is about whether it is useful. And, you know, we have, famous cases of that here in the States where certain uh, members of Congress or senators would sort of have these lists every year of research that they thought was useless and they could make fun of it. Uh, but they often ended up missing, as you will, if you will, the forest for the trees, because a lot of this was maybe about fundamental 
knowledge uh, that one day might contribute to something, but really was just about knowledge. And I, I do think, and I'm always conscious of this because I think that some people can look at Attraction Watch and, and sort of use it in a maybe more cynical way or a sort of uh, overly broad way and say, well, therefore you can't trust science or you, um, you know, we should defund everything. That, that's not, that, that really isn't, well, it's certainly not our, 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 our opinion and it's certainly not the goal of what we're trying to do. But it's also not the goal of what I asked. Yeah, no, of course, of course. No, but I, I think that it's a fair question because the idea is that, you know, if you, again, and by the way, it's not just politicians. If you look at, you know, uh, whether it's corporations or foundations that fund research, they often are very clear that they have a goal. They, they want, you know, why would a company, why would a drug company fund research? Well, it's so that they can get a drug approved. So mm. there is this, you know, but that isn't the only reason to do science. In fact, it's a very small part of the reason to do science. And so I think there needs to be this kind of understanding that what science is really supposed to be about is, is again, fundamental, whether it's discovery or, or, or knowledge. And um, the, the problem becomes when, because of these pressures, so whether it's because a university press officer writes a press release that says, you know, this is about to cure cancer, or this is important in this disease, when it's really not, when it has mm -hmm. nothing to do with that disease, just to get a headline because the incentives are aligned or misaligned so that that's what's important as opposed to getting things, you know, trying to get things right and adding to knowledge are important. I think it really has to do with the incentives and the sort of misinterpretations mm -hmm. rather than with what the findings are. Okay. Now, you highlight the fact that retractions are not being well publicized. Uh, this is obviously understandable. Uh, one never wants to be reminded of one's flaws, but there is naturally a danger involved in this downplaying or silencing of retractions, as you have already mentioned also. Now, one is reminded here of the Notre Dame fire, uh, after which many big French companies announced they would be making enormous donations for the reconstruction of the iconic cathedral. Now, months or even years later, many of these donations have failed to materialize, but people just remember the promise, not its lack of fulfillment. As we have already covered, retracted uh, scientific articles and research can have a similar afterlife. What are your comments on this? And I quote, unquote, a term here that you probably don't like. Fake news, this fake news of science uh, where fraudulent claims live on in the popular imagination, or shall we say, in the folklore of science. Yeah, no, you're correct, Christoph. I don't love that term, although I, I am guilty of having used it before. So I, I should take some, some blame for that. Um, you know, it's been weaponized. Have, probably. Yeah, it's been weaponized and, and politicized. And so, but again, it's not, that's not really the, you know, the focus here is mm. on your question. You know, your, your question, of course, is about, you know, regardless of what we call it, there are, there are claims that turn out to not necessarily be true. Uh, you know, you could call them, you know, old wives tales, you can call mm -hmm. them, you know, there's, there's a famous saying, right? Um, the, uh, the, the truth, um, a, a lie spreads halfway around the world by the time the truth uh, gets its uh, boots on, right? Laces mm -hmm. up its boots. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's true. And frankly, it's even more true in the, uh, maybe in an era of social media, it actually it gets around the world twice before mm -hmm. anyone can send a tweet, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to sort of be conscious of that. And again, I think try and, try and really fight this urge that we all have to overinterpret or to simplify. Mm -hmm. um, everything gets boiled down to, into a headline 
everything gets boiled down into this is what's true. Science is, you know, the world is not binary. Mm-hmm. Science is not binary. The evidence is almost never binary. Uh, it is always nuanced. And so the problem becomes not so much that there's something that was false that people know, it's that the interpretation of that was false. And that's what people remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, it's, I, don't, I don't think we should expect that everyone should start reading the scientific literature. I mean, even other scientists don't understand a lot of the scientific literature if it's out of their field, right? Mm-hmm. So how could we expect someone who doesn't have that training? Every field has its jargon in mm-hmm. and out of science. Um, but I do think we, maybe it's just a, it's a question of helping people to understand. And I, I, I blame the media for this in, in some large part because we, and I am a member of that media, we have to boil things down into headlines and tweets and simple messages. Mm. Uh, we feel that we do, but actually there's a lot of evidence that there's some studies coming out showing that readers trust you much more if you include the nuance. And if you mm. don't, do that. it's just a question of will we, will we capture the attention um, that we need in order to survive as financially, you know, economically as media. That's mm-hmm. a whole other discussion. Yeah. No, this is also something I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that this is something that we insist upon here in Pick Voices, that it's not so simple. And that doesn't mean that it has to become incredibly complex, but oversimplifying things obviously generally tends to much more negative things than over complex, complicating things. Anyway, yeah, to, con- to conclude, you've had some funding for Retraction Watch over the years, but at the moment you rely on your readers' support for about half of your revenues. Now, in the name of scientific integrity, shouldn't institutions and universities and even policymakers be running down your doors to provide you with more funding? Well, Christoph, I would certainly welcome that. Um, well, I, I'm a volunteer. We, we have a small staff who actually, uh, you know, we, we, of course, pay them. I wish we could pay them more, but we can uh, pay them a salary. Um, no, we have had, and we're very, very grateful for our reader support. I mean, that that is so important. And it, it says to us that we are, um, you know, uh, informing and, and being useful and, and maybe sometimes entertaining, mm. um, but, you know, doing something that is useful and that people find useful enough to send us uh, whatever contributions they can. Um, and, you know, but we also, and we did have some generous funding again, which for which we're very, very grateful, um, but the uh, for philanthropic funding, but I, I think that it's up to us to sort of demonstrate that what we're doing is useful. We've actually have started partnering with uh, institutions, whether again they're publishers or other, you know, companies in the publishing space, uh, some universities, some government agencies, even um, who who see that there's value, particularly in our database, and in terms of, you know, cutting down on waste and trying to make science more efficient and just, you know, it it, it works into the, you know, helps into the workflow. Um, I when I was in college, when I was an undergraduate, you know, 30 years ago, I I felt that I was well equipped to tell universities uh, how to spend their uh, budgets. Um, I wrote these some of these uh, editorials that I now look back and think are very, very self-righteous about you know <laughs> what my university should be doing with its money. I I no longer hold the view that I am particularly well uh, equipped to do that. I I am employed in part by a university, so of course I uh, am, am biased. Um, but you know, if anyone finds us of value, and I again I'm happy for people to follow up or to to sort of check out what we do at, at retractionwatch.com, then great. You know, we, and I, I think we are actually on that path um, now that we have really uh, figured out what we want to do. Again, thanks to some, uh, in fact, it was a grant that helped us to think for what we do. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that there's support, but there's a lot of important 
concerns in the world. And I, I certainly won't, wouldn't, I would never uh, try and claim that uh, we are doing the most important thing. Um, there are a lot of competing and, and justified, justifiable interests. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for this, Ivan. And thanks also for co-creating Retraction Watch. This is truly a fundamental and important asset to the scientific community. And uh, I sincerely advise people to have a look at the site and if they like like it to register for the newsletter. Thanks also to our listeners for having joined us once again here at Pink Voices. My name is Christophe van Houten. Bye and thank you.